This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Steve Vickers in Christian Life Church in Montgomery, Alabama. For more information, visit ChristianLifeChurch.com. Well, today is a very special day, and as we have gathered together as the body of Christ here, Christian Life Church, and we come to worship God by singing, by giving, we do it in praying, but then also <clears throat> we're going to do something that Jesus said that we're to do this continually, and that is we're going to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection in what we call communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, it is in the Bible or, or talked about in the Bible in the Gospels, but also Paul talked about it in the book of Corinthians. And it's a very important thing when we, as the body of Christ, take communion together. Now, I'll take communion at home lots of times on my own, but uh, <clears throat> there is something special about us doing this together. There is a supernatural element to what we're about to do. And I want to encourage you that as we, in a few moments, we eat the bread of the bread and we drink of the cup together as the family of God, as a part of the body of Christ around the world, his body, his family. We, the Bible says we're literally his body on the earth. We are the physical body of Jesus on earth today. He is here by his spirit, but we are his physical body. We are his hands, his feet. Uh, we're his mouth. We're all of those things, his eyes and ears here on the earth. We're the ones that do his work and represent him. And as we share together in communion, together partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ together, I want you to open your heart. I want you to uh, let your faith expand. Don't, don't do this as something, oh, I've done this so many times and it's just something a church does. This is a powerful thing. It was the last thing Jesus did together with his disciples. They had eaten together many times over the period of three and a half years. They'd eaten together a number of times, but on this occasion, it was a very special occasion. Special in many ways. It was special because Jesus, they could see a very somber tone within him and you know, uh, we call this last week of his life the Passion of Christ. And uh, the reason it's called that, or his week of passion, the reason is because his passion, the passion that drove him, the passion that kept him focused, the passion of the life of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is, is so visibly and singularly expressed in this last week. There's no confusion, no question about his passion, his purpose, why he was here on earth. And the last thing he did with the disciples in this week of passion was he said, we're going to eat together. We're going to eat together. And, he, uh, and you know the story about him sending the guy to uh, get... He said, you'll find a man with a, a donkey, and, you know, a, a foal that has never been ridden and all the different things. And, and you'll go to this man and you'll tell him to prepare a room for us. And they, had, they met together in what we call, you know, the upper, an upper room. They had a room there where they ate together. It was also in this time as Jesus unfolded and clarified and spoke very succinctly. In these moments right here, these closing moments, just before he was to be taken and going through the crucifixion, his, his mockery, his beatings, his mock trial, and eventually his crucifixion and death and burial. In all of this that happened there, he was very clear in what his purpose was and the things that he said, he clarified our redemption, the elements of our redemption, what purchased our redemption, and what we have by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
But also we see that the enemy exposed himself at this time. Now it's something how the enemy or had been, you know, the, the betrayer had been there with Judas for all the, I mean, uh, Judas had been there with Jesus all these years, uh, three and a half years. He had walked with the disciples. He had, uh, you know, eaten with them. He was with them all the time there as uh, the uh, <clears throat> uh, part of the group of the disciples. But isn't it something that in this moment, at this time, as they took up communion, he could not stay there. He could stay and watch the healings, the miracles, and the sermons. He was there at the Sermon on the Mount. He was there when the 5,000 were fed. He was there when uh, another time others were fed. He was, there, he was there, a part of the group, when Jesus raised Lazarus and, and other miracles that he did. When he walked on the water, he was in the boat. He was there at all of those times. But in this moment, it almost seemed as though and the spiritual stars, if you will, suddenly aligned. And suddenly there was something, a presence, a purposeful presence that was so powerful that he could not stay. Now listen to me. I want to encourage you. Take off your religious eyeglasses. Take off your religious coat. Take off your familiarity with Christianity. You know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. We become complacent. We even become critical of God and Jesus and the body of Christ when we become too familiar with our Christianity. We real quick can criticize other people. We can judge people. We can blame God for things not working out or, or feel like God isn't who he said he would be for us. And we can get real critical and get contempt when we get real familiar. And Judas felt very comfortable with the disciples until this moment. I believe and I declare that as we begin to share in communion together, I declare that those things in your life that ought not to be there, whether they've been there by the enemy or by your own will, that they're going to become very uncomfortable. That suddenly they're going to be uncomfortable in your life. And you're going to be struck with a decision of whether you're going to hold on to them or hold on to Jesus. Now, don't, don't sit there and say, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. Because, you know, when Jesus talked about one would betray him at the supper, they didn't all say, it's not me. You know what they said instead? Is it me? I want to ask you to have that same heart. Don't be so cocky that, oh, I don't have any issues. Why don't you open your heart and humble yourself and say, God, is it me? Or say it this way, God, is there anything in me that is not pleasing, that doesn't please you? If there is, I'm willing and I want to choose you above it. I would rather have you than this. There's a guy that used to Traveled with Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea. He wrote songs and was a singer. He had wanted a career in music because he was a musician, artist. And nothing happened that suddenly a door, a phenomenal door was opened to him. And suddenly... He was struck with the choice. Do I want what the world can offer? Nothing wrong with following a career field unless it's not the one God has for you. You know, we all have to make choices. But hopefully, 
we submit those choices to the Lordship of Jesus. And as he sat there making a decision, wondering which way he should go, suddenly some words came to him in a little tune. And the words were this, I'd rather have Jesus than fortune or fame. I'd rather be called by his holy name. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. If you've ever been to or listened to a Billy Graham crusade in the past, you've heard that song at some time. George Beverly Shea would sing it. And he made a choice to follow Jesus and, and to surrender his will to the will of God. And I just want to ask you today, as we prepare our hearts, our lives, to eat of his body and to drink of his blood through the elements of communion, I would ask that each one of us would say, Dear Jesus, what is it you need to do in my life? What do you want to do? I humble myself. If we'll do that, not one of us will leave here the same, myself included. You know, all of mankind has a genetically transferred disease. Did you know that? And is it something about the Ebola and outbreak and how that's getting to spread? We've already had a death here in the United States and because of travel, Things can happen. You know, AIDS was spread globally by air travel. A man, uh, a flight attendant contracted AIDS and started flying to different places on the airplane and having relations. He was homosexual and having relations with other men. And before you knew it, it was all over the world. Could not be contained all of mankind has a disease but it's genetic it's genetic you know some diseases you catch by virus they're viral or bacterial uh, diseases but there are those that are genetic uh, some people have a genetic tendency or proclivity for certain things. It's in the genetics. And every person, every human being has a genetically transferred disease. And it is the cause of every one of our problems, every ill, every wrong, every evil. Without this disease, man would not have a problem. As a matter of fact, without this disease, earth would be heaven. It would be just like heaven. It would be perfect. There wouldn't, no one would ever kill anyone. As a matter of fact, no animal would kill another animal. The lion and the lamb could play together. Uh, uh, a snake would never bite, but would only protect and, and show beauty and be part of a creation. Uh, I wonder if there would be mosquitoes and roaches. <laughs> if there were, they'd all be good. And they'd serve a good purpose. This genetic disease of mankind is the source of all of our troubles. Our spiritual troubles. Our emotional troubles. Our social problems. You know... If we in the church would just do what Jesus said, what the scriptures teach, we could help society. But the problem is we let society teach us. Yes. Society wants to blame other people for the problems of people. 
But the Bible says our enemies are not flesh and blood. They, they, it, it's not other people. People are not our enemies. Isn't it something how that... Uh, I remember when I was a kid in the uh, early 50s, uh, Japan was an enemy still. And whenever someone spoke about a Japanese, an individual of Japanese descent, they spoke of them. If, they were, if you were American, you spoke of them with disdain. I remember a young Japanese fella was here in Montgomery and went through school with me. And he was treated by everyone else with such disdain. Why? Because some of them probably had lost loved ones in World War II, which was just a few years before. Now, Japanese is a great ally, a great friend. Japan is a great ally of America. Isn't it something how... Our enemies become our friends, and our friends suddenly become our enemies. It's because they really were never our enemies anyway. You think about Hitler in Germany, what happened there? I've been to Germany different times, and whenever I go, they, it never fails. Somewhere, someone... Some German, especially older ones, well, when they recognize I'm an American, they will say, someone will say, we're so sorry. We're so ashamed that we followed someone like him, speaking of Hitler, and allowed him to motivate us, to stir us, to do things so despicable. What was it? Is it that the German people were evil people? No, you know what it was? Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They are spiritual forces. I'll tell you what, everything in your life that is working against you, everything that wants to pull you down, everything when, you're, when you want to reach up and you want to do the right thing, but somehow you get pulled to do the wrong thing. You remember the Apostle Paul said, the things that I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. I believe everyone in here wants to do good and wants to do what's right. And Paul said, I want to do what's right. But all the time when I'm wanting to do what's right, there is something else in me that wants to do wrong. And so he says he... I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he says this. Basically, he said, there's never a moment of peace when there is no struggle. There's always that war going on of something wounding, something inside me, pulling me to go the wrong way, do the wrong thing, have the wrong attitude, do those things that are against God. But there's also inside me a part that says, I want to do what's right. I want to be good to people. I want to, be, I want to live a life that is good. What are we admitting? There is something. And it's not us that is messed up. Unless we completely just yield to that. It is that we deal with the spiritual force. That evil, that disease that is in man has affected man throughout history. And it cannot be solved by medical science. Here we live in the day when medical science has made such tremendous strides forward. Just think of things. Uh, there was a time when they didn't believe germs. They didn't understand germs. So if you got a disease, they would do what they, they would blood, do bloodletting. They would bleed you because it was because something, your blood was evil. And they would think if we bleed you, we'll get the evil spirit out or we'll get the wrong, the bad thing out of you. And the problem might be that they never clean up the pot in their bedroom. 
or they use the bathroom and go eat and they get dysentery. But they didn't understand those things. Medical science has made tremendous advances, but has it cured man's physical problems? Look, at it seems like as soon as we cure one disease, five new ones pop up. We're never going to cure diseases. We'll cure different diseases or find ways to put them in remission or combat them. But there'll always be disease because disease is here because of something. It is here because of something. It's not something wrong with the planet. It's here because of something. We can't solve this problem by education. We've got great education systems now. They always need help. But the, the opportunity for education is phenomenally far beyond anything it was when I started to college. Well, you can get a four-year degree in the comfort of your home now in some cases. You don't have to pack up and move somewhere and live in a dorm. But education has not solved our problems. It can't be solved by money. We have more, we have more uh, millionaires and, uh, than the, the world has ever seen or known. Yet, it hasn't solved our problem. Look at the billionaires in America. It hasn't solved our problem. This problem cannot be solved by the government. We've always been convinced that if we got the right king, he would solve our problems. And the Republicans say, elect our king. And the Democrats say, elect our king. And I'm going to tell you what, there's not been one king, not one president, not one official that has solved our problems. Oh, they'll all take credit for it, whether they do anything or not. That's one thing you can know about a politician. Like the man said, how do you know when a politician is, uh, not, is lying? They said, just see if his mouth is moving. <laughs> it's a shame. And it's not one or two of them that seem to be motivated totally by political gain. It's become the, the uh, way of the system. It's amazing. Our presidents get in, they become presidents to ensure that they make us or reelected the second term. Our government, there's not a government on earth, whether it's democratic, communist, socialist. Now, certain forms of government allow the people a lot more freedom. But there's no government going to solve our problems. And if we in the church believe that government is going to be our answer, we are very foolish. There's no act of man that will solve our problem. Because our problem is not an intellectual problem. It's not a physical problem. And it's not an emotional problem. But it is, however, the root cause of all of these problems. The Bible is very plain. It is the only book in history that accurately diagnoses what this problem is. And the Bible does it very straightforward and with absolute simplicity. It says this, your problem is sin. That is the sin, or the disease of man. Sin. Sin. We could fill every political spot in, the, in America with Republicans, and it wouldn't solve our problem. We could fill every political spot with Democrats. It wouldn't solve our problem. You know why? Because it never touches the problem. The problem is not something that man can solve. It's something God has to solve. And it offends God 
when we put our hope in man and not in him. You remember, you may not remember this, but when Israel wanted a king, God said, why do you want a king? Let me be your king. And they said, but all the other nations have kings. We want a king. He said, let me tell you what a king's going to do. He's going to conscript your sons into his army and send them out to die in battles that he wants won that will be of his choosing. He'll take your daughters and use them as his concubines. And your children will be his slaves. Why do you want a king? If you let me be your king, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will guide you. And I will demonstrate through you that I am the greatest king there is. And yet, listen to what they did. They said, we still want a king. Can you imagine signing that contract? When the guy that's sitting there for you to sign the contract... Now, God didn't say this, but the king is sitting there saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take everything you got. Everything you have is going to belong to me. Do you realize in America everything really belongs to the government? You heard of eminent domain? Do you know the land your house is on? If the government wants it, they can take it, and you have no recourse? That's just the fine print that our government put in there. Now, am I against our government in the United States? Absolutely not. Because the Bible says now that we're going, if you're going to have a king, God said you better submit to him. Did you hear me? He said you better submit to him and you better pray for him. So that's our, you know, we're the ones that asked for this. So do it. But don't do this. Let's don't put our hope in how much money we can make. Because your money will be here today and gone tomorrow. And there are things that your money cannot get you out of. I've been in the hospital at the bedside of rich, wealthy people that could have bought the hospital, but they couldn't buy a treatment because there was none to save their life. Don't put your hope in the government. The government can't save us. Don't put your hope in education. Get an education, but it's not your deliverer. Don't put your hope in what people can do for you. Turn your face towards God and trust Him. Believe God and work hard and, and, and do what you need to to earn a living and gain finances. But don't put your trust in finances. Be a faithful citizen. Vote and and stand up for the Constitution and do what's right in our governmental system. But don't put your hope in our governmental system. Put your hope in God. Have friends. But don't manipulate them or make them your source of how you're going to make it in life. Hope in God. Because of this problem that man has, listen to this. Adam lost his home, his fortune, and his inheritance. Because of sin, Adam lost everything. Listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. I'm sitting here. I'm teaching not because I am some great source of wisdom, but because Jesus asked me to do this. Just as he's asked each one of us to do certain things. I am not sitting here as someone that has arrived. You and I are on a journey together. I am still praying, God, work in my heart. Change me. 
I still have things that I have to say, God, forgive me. And I know there's a teaching that says you never have to say that again. You just go on. and I'm not going to deal with that. Do what you want. But if I hurt her, if I do something against her, I'm not going to act like I didn't do anything. Because that dishonors her more. If we are at a restaurant, and I'm not going to do this, but if we were at a restaurant and a pretty waitress walked up and I started flirting and, and just acting ridiculous with her and in, with my wife there and embarrassing her, I would be a fool. A stupid, ignorant, old fool. But if I did that, What would hurt her more is if I acted like it didn't matter. And it just expected us to go on. And we go home and the next day we're having coffee. We have coffee every morning together. Uh, If we're sitting there having coffee and I'm acting like everything, she's going to have a hurt. So believe what you want about never ever having to say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. If you never have to say that. God bless you. But that doesn't work for me. Because if I wrong someone, if I wrong you, I owe you an apology. I should say, I should make it right. And Jesus said, if you owe someone a debt, make it right before you get to the judge. And when we wrong people, we've done them wrong. So what I'm saying is, I'm like you. I'm among you. I am one of you. When I talk to you, I'm talking to me. Sin, now hear me. There is nothing as costly in your life as sin. Nothing. Nothing. Sin, it will steal your faith. When you practice sin, when you continually are going to hold on to a sin, When you turn to God, you may try with all your heart. But you see, we can do a lot of things on the external, while inside in the internal and deep inside our heart, there's a little voice that says, you know you're not right. So we can act like we got faith on the outside, but on the inside, our conscience judges us. And the Bible talks about people that were Christians, that were believers that served God. But the Bible says they made shipwreck of their faith. What does that mean? That they literally drove the ship of their life into the rocks that sunk their ship. And you know, it tells us how they did it because they violated their conscience. Their conscience became calloused. Sin steals our sensitivity to God to where over time, sin doesn't matter. That's dangerous. When I can come to the house of God and worship God and sing and do all the things that we do together as people and and call myself a Christian when I'm absolutely, no, I'm practicing sin. I'm living, doing things that God's not pleased with. When I do that, I create a callus. You know what a callus is? I had a friend that was into karate pretty heavy. And as a young man learning karate, I knew him as an older man, or a little older, but when he was young learning karate, he would hit 
he would hit this log, a pole, and he would kick it with his shins and hit it, and he would, and then he'd hit this, had this thing, I don't know what it was, but, and he would hit that, and he broke his hand, over, his bones in here, over and over and over again. They'd heal up, he'd break them again. They'd heal up, he'd break them again. And by the time I met him, his skin here was thick. You could take a knife, he could take a pen, a, a needle wouldn't go into it. He couldn't get a shot there, it would bend the needle, it was so hard. But you could take a knife, he could take a knife and cut the skin. He wouldn't feel a thing, he had no feeling there. And when we continually sin, we put a callus on our spirit where we're no longer sensitive to God's conviction. That's dangerous. Because of the problem of sin, because of sin, listen to this. Because of this problem in man, Cain killed his own brother. For his own selfish gain. Out of jealousy. And man. Has been doing that. Ever since. There's where we get racism. There's where we get. Black on black. White on white. Whatever you want to call. Crime. And we kill one another. Money's not going to solve that. Education's not going to solve that. Sure there needs to be. Things in the social areas that help. But those aren't going to solve the problem. Because man has been killing his own brother ever since Cain, when sin came into the heart of man. I want to read something to you. They forced Jesus to carry, or he was carrying his cross. Then they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means Skull Hill. The soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall, and but he went. But when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around. You know what we could say? They repossessed. They foreclosed on the only thing he had, which was his. The only thing he owned. The only possession Jesus had. Only possession Jesus had on earth was the clothes on his back. That's all he had. And they foreclosed on that. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him. Their crosses on either side of his. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. So, you can destroy the temple and build it again in three days, can you? Well then, if you are the Son of God, why don't you save yourself and come down off of that cross? The leading priest, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So is he king of Israel? Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusted God, then let God show his approval by delivering him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the criminals who were crucified with him also shouted the same insults at him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. So from twelve to three, it was like midnight. 
At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand what happened there? Do you understand? The only righteous person that has ever walked this earth, the only true good man, suffered God's separation. The separation of every, that everyone who rejects Jesus, everyone who determines to go their own way and they will spend an eternity without God. But Jesus tasted of that for us. And when suddenly this God withdrew his spirit from Jesus, Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a stick so he could drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus shouted out again and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And by so doing, God said, I am no longer hidden from common man. I am accessible to whoever will believe me, to whoever wants me, to whoever chooses to come to me. Come. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead after Jesus' resurrection. They left the cemetery, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers, listen to this, at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. So who has believed this message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot sprouting from a root and dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was no Hollywood beauty star. He was no Hollywood pretty boy. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. I'm reading from Isaiah who is prophesying about Jesus at the cross as he walked up the hill and as they hung him on the cross. Yet it was our sicknesses he carried. It was our pains and diseases that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us, every one of us, have strayed away 
and gone our own way like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Jesus the guilt and the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial they led him away to his death, but who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins, that he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. Because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great. Because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many, and he interceded for sinners. Dear Jesus, I ask you that you would help us to see clearly what you did for us, the price you paid, and why you did it. For God so loved the world that he gave you his only son to suffer and die for us. That if we would believe that whoever would believe in you, Jesus, would never suffer the punishment of our sins, but we would have eternal life. I pray for everyone here, O oh God. I pray that if there be anyone, anyone here, that is, their heart is not where it should be with you, O oh Lord, that you would draw them and in all of our lives, help us to search our hearts. Be open and honest with you. And allow you to do your work in us, the work of your grace, of your spirit. I'd like you to take your elements. Don't, oh, don't do anything with them yet. As you hold the little thing there, the cup and the bread in your hand, we're going to take just a moment for you, where you are, to make an altar in your heart and talk to God about your life. I want to invite you to allow God to speak very honestly to you. If there are things in your life that you know are wrong, the Bible says if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Let's take a moment and search our hearts to make sure our life is where it should be. Search our hearts of God. Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, you know our heart. You know each and every one of us. Help us to be honest and real with you. Cleanse us, Lord Jesus. Cleanse our hearts. Cleanse our lives. Help us to live lives that please you. We humble ourselves before you. We pray for your will, your work to be done in us. Forgive us and cleanse us. And fill us with your spirit, we pray. Take your, get the bread, the little wafer. You peel off the little plastic thing on the top. Get the bread in your hand and then peel back the top of the little cup. And the juice is there. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. Let's take and eat the bread together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body that was broken for us. As we eat this now, we receive it as the body of Christ. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's drink together. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you for your blood. We thank you that by your blood we are redeemed. Our sins are washed away. We praise you, Jesus. Let's all stand. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information, visit ChristianLifeChurch.com.